because I want to finish this up. And uh, we're going through what the church believes about church things. But then I want to I use that as a, as a jumping off point into getting to some, some areas the church dodges today uh, that you know, I think it's, it's time, maybe we've dodged, and maybe it's time to, to take some of those on full time. But today we're going to talk about the one kind of, we've talked about God, we talked about us, guess what's next? We're going to talk about the devil. You could probably figure that out from the opening video that we had. And I just, I have to correct one thing in the video, that one thing that girl said, Gabriel did not become the devil. <laughs> just... Somebody need to pay attention to Bible study class or something. That was Lucifer. But anyway, but, you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, I was thinking back in my life, and I know that's a long way to think back, but uh, back in 1970, some of you weren't born yet, but I was, uh, there was a comedian who shot to superstardom with one very famous catchphrase. Some of you will remember this. She came in the house. She had the box. Rev saw it. Rev said, what, another dress? This is ridiculous. Three dresses in a week, another dress. And she tells him, I didn't want to buy this dress. <laughs> the devil made me buy this dress. She said, I was going down the street. I was minding my own business, singing to myself. And the devil stopped following me, telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rev said, I'm not going for that. He said, because every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. The devil made me do it. It was on t-shirts. It was on bumper stickers. It was all over. Everybody really had a great time with this. Christians and non-Christians alike, for different reasons, thought this was hilarious. For Christians, it was nice to see the devil the punchline of a joke for a change. You know, everybody's laughing at the devil. That's a good thing. But I actually don't think it was a good thing. I think this was according to plan because, you know, it's really hard to be afraid of something that you're laughing at. And I think that was phase one of, uh, of his plan. I think he was going into a, I think the devil kind of goes through these cycles, and I think he was going to go into his camouflage cycle, because you need to understand that laughing may remove the fear, but it does not decrease the danger. You can laugh at things, laugh in the face of fear, but if there's real danger there, you're still in danger. And that's, I think, what the devil wanted. He wanted everybody to kind of just think, hey, it's no big deal, it's funny, uh, I'm, I'm nothing to be afraid of. Now, let me fast forward less than a generation, according to the, you know, biblical terms, in less than a generation, the Barna group, who is this pollster group, kind of like uh, Gallup polls, but they specifically focus on Christian things, right? So they, they surveyed a bunch of Christians, and, and you know they have those, those scales, like I somewhat agree, I somewhat disagree, you know, whatever, that scale. So this is the, the scale, and they asked them, do you believe, kind of what they're asking in this video, do you believe there is a person or a being, a personification of evil called the devil. It was actually a Satan or a devil. And here's what they discovered. This was done in 2009. Four out of 10 Christians, 40%, strongly agreed. That's what they checked. Strongly agreed Satan is not a living being. It's simply a symbol of evil. And if you take the people who said they somewhat agree, that adds another 20%. That's 60% of American Christians, Christians now, no longer believe that the devil is real. This is actually pretty cool because for the devil, it works out very well. In fact, it kind of works out pretty well for churches who just want to preach an easy-to-get-along-with gospel, honestly. Uh, because what happens is they, they teach what they teach because you, know, you can't ignore the devil's mentioned in the Bible from Genesis almost through Revelation. I think Esther doesn't mention them, but about every other book does. And so you can't ignore that. You can't ignore that demons are mentioned. So what do you do with that? Well, this is just kind of a, a metaphor that we use to describe the struggle within. You know, this is all kind of just metaphorical. 
And that really works for a lot of churches because commandments, you know, those need to be obeyed, but metaphors, they really only have to be admired. You know, if someone comes up with a metaphor, oh, that's a cool metaphor. You know, some of these metaphors people come up with, that's really cool. And, and so I don't really need to obey it, but what happens then is, is I kind of start shifting my thinking on a lot of things about good and evil. Uh, and so what happened in that course of that generation, we now have this situation. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. Just like that, he's gone. And I really think that's where the devil is today in most uh, Christians thinking. And that was done in 2009. My guess is that they did it again today. It'd be a higher number. Here's the thing that really scares me, though. Um, I'll bet if they polled Christian pastors, those numbers would track pretty close as well. Because I know a lot of preachers who really don't believe in Satan as a, person, as a real person or a real being. Now, this benefits the devil three ways. I want you to show you this because this is why he would do this. Like, why would the devil want people not to know he's here? There's three real strong benefits that he gets by you not believing in him. Uh, number one, if there is no devil, there are no demons, and the Bible accuracy has to be called in question. I mean, really, if we're going to say, well, the demons, they don't really exist, and the devil doesn't really exist, uh, they're just kind of metaphors, and, and uh, so he said, well, Jesus spoke of them. Well, yes, but he was speaking to a superstitious people, and you have to speak in their terms, so he used this metaphor as well, right? And so, and of course, the apostles, I guess, were all in on it as well. It's just this kind of metaphor. And you just take a look at the, and you go back and read the Bible, and boy, it really seems like Jesus knew what he was talking about, and it wasn't a metaphor. Here in John 8, he says, you are of the, your father the devil. That's what he's talking about to the Pharisees. He says, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. The devil's lips are moving. He's lying. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That really sounds like a person, doesn't it? I mean, when you read that, and you, a metaphor, I don't know. That's a stretch, I think, a little bit to say Jesus is talking about a metaphor. And he says, and, but because I speak the truth, you just won't believe me. Now, Satan, the word Satan appears in the New Testament, because we look these things up, preachers, 36 times. Satan, just so you know, is not a name. Neither is God. By the way, just in case you didn't know that, God is not his name. Uh, God is his title. And as such, so is Satan. Satan is a title. It means the adversary. And Jesus you know, taught the adversary of your soul. So Satan's a title, so is God. When I was growing up, you know, the one unforgivable sin in my house that you never uttered as a preacher's kid was uh, you never use God's name in vain. And to my way of thinking, the way I was brought up, that was to say the words God damn. Then, you know, some of you, even I can tell now, are nervous by me saying it here. Uh, you know, that would send you straight to hell, man. You know, just a fast ticket right there, no stops, just all the way there, straight to hell. If you, but God isn't even his name. That's not even, I'm not saying you should say that. I'm just simply saying that's not really taking God's name in vain. That's not violating the, the commandment because God is not his name. And Satan is not the devil's name. Satan is his title. His name is Lucifer. We know that from the other, the other scriptures, not Gabriel. Lucifer. So, um, but we see that throughout the New Testament, they're speaking about demons and things as completely matter of fact. It's like, this is a well known. And Jesus sends out 70 to spread the gospel. This is in the middle of the gospel. Uh, he sends out 70 to go proclaim the gospel and go around and preach to kind of let everybody know that the Messiah was here and, and to preach the gospel. And he gives them the, these, these, these commandments as you spread the gospel and you are to heal the sick. 
and you're to cast out demons. He sends them out and they come back. And the one thing they want to talk to him about, the things blown their minds is they were able to cast out demons. That was like the thing they just couldn't get away, get away from. In Luke 10, they, they come back. The 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And watch what Jesus says here. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What he's saying is we took the kingdom of Satan down a notch. It fell by your work. I could watch the spiritual battle take place and we were winning. That's what he's saying. Because Jesus actually can see into the spiritual world and we really can't, but he could. So he says, I saw that happen. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I give you the authority to trample over serpents and scorpions. And this is basically the serpent being the devil, scorpions, his demons, and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing they shall have by any means hurt you. You're safe. This is the world that they have never seen before where they had authority over this. But do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And so don't get too full of yourself. This isn't the real thing. The real thing is I'm, you know, I'm your savior and your names are written in heaven. That's what you need to be proud of. In other words, be proud of heaven's strength, not your actions. We always need to keep that in mind. Uh, Paul tells us the same thing. It's very easy when we start doing things in God's name and it's working. It's like, well, look at me. You know, he says, no, no, no. Focus on the heaven. You have to always focus on heaven. So here's the thing though. If demons aren't real, you just can't get away from the fact that it means Jesus deceived us on some level. He's part of a deception. Has to be. I mean, the way he talks about them, knowing, because Jesus would have known this, knowing that it was being written down for all eternity, knowing that we would have it 2,000 years later, he still spoke this way, knowing it wasn't true if it weren't. That must mean that Jesus was part of a deception since when does Jesus become a deceiver? There's absolutely no way we can really accept that. But if you do, if you start thinking, well, the demons aren't real, and the devil's not real, then it really opens you up to, well, other things are metaphors. Maybe angels aren't real. Well, who are all these people speaking to? You know, maybe the Holy Spirit's not really real. Maybe it's not. And so we open ourselves up to really taking the Bible and changing it. So it just becomes kind of a morality tale for us. It comes the general guidelines of the way we should sort of try to live our life. And I know a lot of people, Jews and Christians both, who basically will tell you that's what they believe. It's basically a morality tale. And we're supposed to be moral, and that's all it is. It's just there to guide us through its little morality tales. Okay, number two, if there is no devil, there is only you, then there's no temptation. There's no one tempting you. And that means living righteously, righteously is all on you now. And fighting sin, it's all on you. It's not a spiritual battle anymore, right? There is no spiritual battle. There's no Satan. There's no demons. There's no spiritual battle. No one's trying to tempt you. Where's the temptation coming from? Well, it's coming from your internal self. You have this nature to sin. And this is the struggle between good and evil within you. And you need to work on it in order to con conquer it. But it's up to you. You understand? The devil loves to put it all on you because he knows you'll fail. And then you'll get discouraged and then you'll quit. And this is the cycle I think that I lived many, many years in my Christian life. I'd start out, I, I got all this knowledge, you guys raised in the church, I know it's right, I know it's wrong, okay, I'm going to fight this flesh of mine, I'm going to go off and I'm okay for a little while, but after a while the flesh wins, I fall, and when you fall, it's not like you just fall back to where you were, no, you fall like 10 steps back, and now I feel horrible, now I'm depressed, I'm a horrible person, I can't even be a good Christian, and I want to quit, maybe I do kind of quit for a little while, I'm going to stop going to church, I'm going to stop reading Bible, I'm just, I'm just evil and wicked, and then later on you go, well, I'm going to try harder. And you come back up, you try again. And it's all based on you. It's all based on what you can do with your might and your power. And we forget the fact that 
God himself says, no, it's not. He answers, this is the Lord, says to me, this is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you can't do this without my spirit. You know why? Because it's a spiritual battle. You can't win this in the physical world. You're going to have to win it in the spiritual world. That's what we have to understand. We are surrounded by a spiritual world. You know, we think we're a body who has a soul. No, we're a soul who gets carried around by a body. We have the whole thing backwards. Uh, I was asked about this after Passover. Those of you who are at the Passover, I told that um, you know, when, when, we, when Jesus is risen from the dead and John and Peter discover him in the grave, we could discover, well, where he was in the grave. The Bible says they walked in and they saw the cloth folded. And I always thought that just meant Jesus really liked to clean his room before he left. You know, he's a good boy. Like, you know, he's taught up. So he, he rose from the dead. The first thing he thinks is, well, I can't leave a mess, you know, and he folds it all up and lays it down there neatly. But that's not what it means. There's actually a, a burial fold that they used to, to, to cover the body in those days. There was a special way that they would fold the cloth that went over top of a body, the same way a, an American flag gets folded, you know, by veterans. You'll see this very, very precise folding. That's what they would do. And so what the Bible was telling us when they saw them, the folds were still there, but the body was gone. That kind of changes the miracle a little bit. If you remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he comes out, he's still got him all over him. And Jesus says, somebody unwrap the man. He's, you know, he's, he's living and they have to take it all off of him. He comes up with everything still on him. That's because Jesus rose him from the dead. He pulled, you know, he gave him life so he could bring him, his body back up from, from where it was. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose up in a new body. And we know this because he tells Mary Magdalene, don't hug me, I have not yet ascended. So he comes up in a new body. What happens? He passed through the cloth. Now, I always thought if that's true, he must have turned into a spirit, some kind of a wispy thing like we see in the movies, you know, like Terminator or something, and comes up, you know? That's not what happens at all. He just passed through the cloth. How is that possible? Well, he does the same thing a little bit later. When he comes to see the disciples, he passes through the door. Again, what does he do? Does he become a ghost, pass the door and reaffirm? No, we don't understand because to us, this is the most solid thing in the world. But it's not to Jesus. If you were to step in water, water has mass, right? We know that. Water has mass, water, water has weight. But you can walk through water, right? Why? Because you're more solid than the water. That's why. Jesus is more solid than this. See, when we get this, we think of spirit world, we're thinking of it all wrong. There's another layer of solid that we don't see, and that's the spirit world. So the real world is a spirit world, and we're in a world inside of it. And that's what, we, that's what Jesus kept on trying to tell us. There's a whole spiritual warfare going on around you. You have to understand that, and you keep ignoring it. And that's what he's telling us. And uh, Paul comes back in Ephesians and says, look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not just you and your sinful nature. It's not just that. But we rest, listen, he says, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. He says, it's not just a, like a little tiny demon. We're wrestling against things that are established and set up as, as power centers, strongholds, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. That's what you're up against. Yeah. And they're cleaning our clocks because they're established and they're set and we're coming up against them with our might and our blood and our power. It's not enough. He says, you won't be able to do that. The number three reason why the devil loves for you to believe he doesn't exist because it's almost impossible to defend yourself against a punch that you never see coming. There's a name for this punch. It's called a sucker punch, right? You'll see some people get sucker punched sometimes. I don't know if you've been, you know, you're all righteous. So you've never been in the bars like I have, but I've seen guys get sucker punched. I saw a guy get sucker punched, well, sucker hit on the back of the head with a bottle 
uh, once, and just out of nowhere. Just, someone recognizes an enemy and goes up and bang. That's a sucker punch. It's not a fair fight. Devil doesn't mind sucker punching you. You need to know that. He's not, a, he's not all about fairness. He's not, oh, I'll wait for you to get your Bible. Sure, sure, go ahead. No, no, he'll hit you early. He'll hit you often. He doesn't care. He will sucker punch you. And it's really easy to sucker punch somebody who doesn't see you and refuses to see you and refuses to believe you even exist. You can hit that guy forever. He'll never, ever look for you because you can't be there. That can't be happening. What's going on? I don't know. Life just sucks. I don't know why I just keep getting a sucker punch. We don't know. But we have to understand that if we don't realize the attack is spiritual, we will always try to respond physically. You are never going to win a spiritual attack by defending physically. That will never happen. The spiritual world is more solid than you. You will lose again and again and again. So um, in, in Corinthians, Paul talks about this. He talks about how we do things and they seem like on the physical, but they're actually spiritual. He's actually talking about somebody who's been out bad-mouthing him. And uh, the Corinthians are all upset about him. And Paul's upset about him too. But he tells him this. He says, you know what? You forgive them and I'll forgive them. Let's both forgive this person. I'll also forgive. What I have forgiven, if there even was anything to forgive, like he says, I don't even know what the guy was saying. I don't know. But I'll forgive him. I have forgiven. In fact, I have forgiven it in the presence of Jesus Christ. He said, I'll tell you what I did when I heard about this. I got on my knees in front of Jesus and said, Lord, I totally forgive them for what they're doing. I do. And look why, for your sake. I did it for your sake. Now, he goes on and explains why. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his devices. You know what Satan wants you to do? Never forgive. You don't forgive, guess what you give Satan? A foothold in your life. And now he owns you. That's all, that's all it takes. Just don't forgive. And he let, you're letting him in. He says, this is, this is why I did this. I don't even know if he did anything to me, but I'm going to forgive him. And I did it in the presence of Jesus. I said, Lord, I want you to know I totally forgive him because I'm not going to let the devil come between them and you. And don't, and don't you dare hold that offense for my sake. I've already forgiven him. Sometimes we do that. We will be mad at somebody that that person's already been forgiven for. But we'll hold on to it forever. Man, we are the Hatfield McCoys around here, aren't we? We can hold on to a grudge for generations and we pass it down. We can hold on to it and we can hold on to it. We can hold it. He says, you know what? Forgive. We need to let go because Satan works best when you're just not diligent. You need to focus on these things. And, and we have to understand that we do things in the physical world which affect the spiritual world and those are things we need to focus on. We need to. But what happens is we get lulled in this false sense of security. Like, well, the devil's not really around. He doesn't really know who I am or whatever. Because we're often looking in the wrong place for the devil. See, we think as long as everything is going well in our life, God's blessing us, then the devil's not around. But that's not how the devil works. <laughs> He's a deceiver. He doesn't fight fair. You understand he doesn't fight fair. And I'm going to show you that oftentimes when things are going great in your life, you should really be looking for the devil. Right? Because if he's not attacking your stuff, which he doesn't want it anyway. He's attacking something else. And that's where I watch people trip up all the time. Good Christian people think, I'm being blessed by God. And they'll tell me I think God's doing their lives, all these blessings they're getting. But I'm watching them slowly get pulled further further away from God. God will never bless you to pull you away from Him. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a job. I don't care if it's a husband. I don't care if it's a wife. I don't care if it's a boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't care if it's a grandchild or a child. 
If it's pulling you away from God, you've got to be careful. God will never give you a blessing to pull you away from Him. He wants to give you a blessing. The Bible, in James, he says he, he gives us a perfect gifts with no turning and no shadow. It means they're perfect all the way through. So when God gives you gifts, it's all the way through. But sometimes we get caught up in this and we look around and say, well, I'm still you know, doing all right. I must be okay. Jesus tells us flat out what we look at as though it matters is not what matters. And he tells us in, in this verse, and let me, let me show it to you because it, it's, uh, it's kind of confusing if you think about it in this terms, but I'll, I'll show you why it applies. He's talking about money here. You love it when Jesus talks about money. He says, look, he who is faithful in very little is also faithful. In, he who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. He's, this is a very common spiritual principle. And one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. Little man gets a little power. What happens? We know, right? So if you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Jesus was just talking about little things. Now he's talking about wealth. According to Jesus, he's talking about the same thing. Do you see that? This is the same thing. He's continuing his thought. He starts by saying, you know, if you're not faithful with little things, they don't matter. Now let me tell you about wealth that doesn't matter. See, to him, wealth doesn't matter. To us, it means everything. Because, you know, we look at our lives, and if we're wealthy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, we're doing okay. Everything's good. Why would I worry about what the devil's doing? He ain't touching me. Look at me. Just got a new car. Just got a new job. Got a new house. I'm good. Devil's not touching me. I'm untouchable, in fact. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's little stuff. You're not paying attention to the important stuff. He goes on, he says, if I can't trust you to be faithful with money, this little thing, how in the world can I trust you with true riches? What's the true riches? You are. You are. That's what the true riches are. He's saying, if I can't trust you to be faithful with money, why would I give you people to be faithful with? Why would I do that? In fact, uh, we have to understand that Satan only attacks your things when he's unable to attack your family. He'd rather have your family. He'll give you all the stuff you want as long as he can take out your kids, as long as he can destroy your marriage. Feel free. Go buy the new car. Can you have a child? Because this is what the devil really wants. He, wants. he knows the true wealth. He knows the true wealth of the people. He's after the people, not the stuff. Keep your stuff. He doesn't care. He wants the things. He wants the things that matter. He wants the people. And we're sitting there focused on, man, I've got to guard my stuff. We'll pray about that. Oh, dear Lord, don't let that storm hit my house tonight. We'll protect our house, you know. Oh, dear Lord, please don't let me slide on ice and wreck my new car. And we'll pray those prayers. And there's our children completely open to the devil. And we don't even see it. Listen, it might be your children, it might be anything. But you need to understand that the spiritual world intersects your physical world at the point of your greatest struggle. If you want to know where the devil's cleaning your clock, where are you struggling? It, it will affect your life. The spiritual world affects your life. That's the truth. It will affect your life. And if you want to know where, just look. Now, now if you fight that right there where it's affecting your life with your physical might and your physical power, you lose. This is why Paul was smart. He said, I'm not going to let this even start. I'm going to forgive this man and take all the power away from the devil. I'm not stupid. I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to create divisions. I'm not going to let it happen. So he just took care of that. It was a physical act in the spiritual world. And this is what we need to find. We need to find the ways that we can do things spiritually to take off the spiritual attack that we're under that we don't even believe can happen because we don't believe the devil exists. Jesus says, look, I'm the door. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and come in and go out and find pasture. In and out. Everything's fine. 
you're fine. But the thief, he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. The devil is not a concierge of pleasure. That's how he gets pictured. Oh, I am your devil. I will be providing you pleasure today. What would you like? I have some lovely sexual pleasure here and some lovely internet porn here, drugs here, some alcohol. How can I help you? Right? This is how we seem to think. The devil just wants us all to live the life on earth, you know, this pleasurable life on earth. No, he is trying to steal, kill, and destroy you. Destroy you so there's no coming back. He's trying to steal your salvation, steal your hope, steal your faith. He's trying to kill you, and he's trying to destroy you. That's what he's trying to do. He's not out to help you in any sort of a way. This is what Jesus is telling us. Peter picks up that and says, look, be sober. <laughs> Stay alert. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers in the world. What Peter's saying is, look, the devil's attacking you. Cheer up. He's attacking us too. I heard a preacher put it this way. If you haven't run into the devil lately, maybe it's because the two of you have been running the same direction. You know, if you're, if you're really sitting out there doing God's work, the devil will come at, come at you. So what do we do then when we're attacked? Well, the very first thing we need to do is we need to stand firm in the faith. And we need to realize that if we're being attacked, it's a spiritual attack. It may be manifesting itself in the physical world. And I'm not saying we don't have to deal with that at some level, but in order to remove it, we need to remove the cause. And the cause is coming from the spiritual world. And we're going to spend some time on this in the upcoming weeks because um, I think it's a verse we all know, a section we all know in the Bible, but we kind of gloss over it because it's a cool metaphor. We admire metaphors. I love metaphors. You know, I really do. They're, they're cool. They're, they're picturesque. I love metaphors. But we have to go beyond the metaphor and to see the reality that Paul's coming up with. And we know this verse. I think everybody knows this because we have posters for it and stuff. This is in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Take up the full armor of God. It says, you are fighting against a foe that's coming at you with everything. Armor up. Suit up. Get it all on. Don't take anything for granted. He said, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist righteousness like an armor around your chest, your, leg, your, your feet sandaled with a readiness for the gospels of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, and with it, you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. Pray at all times in the Spirit. In the Spirit. You have to get the spirit world working on your behalf. You, ha you can't just fight this stuff physically. With every prayer and request, stay alert and with perseverance and intercession for all the saints. And that's something that uh, Roman, and we're going to look at this because actually every time I read this and was told this, I always pictured King Arthur's knights, you know, the armor. But that's actually not what Paul's describing here. He's, he's describing a Roman soldier because that was the picture of the day. It's different. The Roman soldiers fought differently than other soldiers did. And that's why they were able to conquer most of the earth because the Roman soldier fought with this in mind. You guard the guy on the left and the guy on the right. That's your job. And their job is to guard you. And if everybody does that, they couldn't be beat. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, you need to pray not just for you, but for all saints. You need to guard the guy on the left, the guy on the right. If we come together as a body in a spiritual warfare, we win. That's what Jesus says. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against that. But we're out there by ourselves. We put down our armor and we're trying to fight with our bare fists and we're losing. We're losing a lot. Here, here's the reality. But it says, well, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun. I don't want to do that. Let somebody else fight the fight. 
Don't we pay you, pastor, to fight the fight? By the way, no, you don't. I don't get paid. But, um, so you've got to join in. But second of all, you, know, you can't even pay professionals to fight the fight. That's not how this works. And, and well, but I don't want to fight. It just seems like hard work, and I might get hurt. I'd rather just sit here and enjoy my life. I don't want to fight. Can't somebody else fight? The reality is you cannot choose whether you will be in a spiritual world war or not. You are. That's what Jesus tells us. You're in a war. It's a spiritual war. You were born in it. You don't get to choose that. Here's your only choose, choice. You can choose whether you will be a soldier or collateral damage. Those are your choices. And I'm seeing a lot of people who are becoming collateral damage, and I'm saying I think we need to rise up and become soldiers instead. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us a brand new vision.